This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. A few years ago, a, um, a fellow pastor friend of mine, someone who had um, prayed over me at a time when I most needed it, someone who we as a church family, we actually paid uh, his salary for a few months when his church was unable to, um, he was out drinking late one night. And on his way home, he made what would be a fateful wrong turn um, up the exit ramp of the freeway, heading west on the eastbound lane. And he hit a semi in a head-on collision and died. I think about him from time to time. I think about how different things might have gone if someone had just stepped in, if someone had, had intervened at any point along that night, if there'd been someone to have stopped him from having another drink, if there'd been someone to take his keys from him and kept him from getting in the car, if there'd been something that prevented him from going up the exit ramp and onto the freeway, uh, flashing red lights, an arm that came down, or I don't care, even, even uh, spikes that would puncture his tire, just something that says, this is the wrong way. Like as the night progressed, that path that he was on put him in increasing danger. And while someone intervening over the course of that night may have felt restricting to him at the time, I think we know looking back that it very much would have been loving, protecting him from the danger that he was in and the destruction that he was headed toward. And that's the case for the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. Some 200 years after this powerful kingdom had fractured and divided in two, they were on a path that was leading them further and further away from God, leading them into destruction. And they needed someone to step in. They needed someone to intervene, something to protect them from the destruction that they were headed towards. And that's what we see here in the second chapter of Hosea as we continue this season of Lent, this season of reflection and repentance, seeing into the heart of God here in this story of Hosea and the story of his wife. Now, last week, we were introduced to the story of Hosea's family, a story that serves as a, as a metaphor for Israel's story. By seeing the graphic nature of his wife's sin and her children born out of that sin, and by seeing that, we also then saw the depth of Israel's sin and thereby the depth of our own sin. Seeing our sin from God's perspective as the one whom we have sinned against. And this morning, as we look at the story of Hosea's wife, a story that we're going to see play out in three parts, we're going we're to see the danger that Israel was in, this path to destruction that they were on by showing us the danger that Hosea's wife was in and the destruction she was headed towards. We're going to see into the heart of God as he steps in, as he intervenes, responding to sin. And then thirdly, we're going to close seeing the good news in Hosea, the result of God's intervention, the, this message of hope 
So if you haven't already, why don't you go ahead and take out your Bibles. Let's open them to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Hosea is the first of those 12 minor prophets, so he's after uh, Daniel. If you get to Matthew, flip back just a bit. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 2. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is Israel's path to destruction. Now, Hosea, he begins here by, uh, by calling out to his children, both to his biological son as well as his adopted son and daughter. And he cries out to them in verse 2 saying, plead with your mother, plead for, for she is not my wife and I, I'm not her husband anymore. Right? Our, our marriage, it is, it is broken, it is, it is nearly over. And like Hosea, he, he is in anguish, his heart is, is breaking over this, because he says later on in verse five that his wife, that she has played the whore. That their own mother who conceived them, she's acted shamefully. She had become that wife of whoredom God said she would become in chapter one. When Hosea was told by God to go and, and love a woman that, that he knew would never love him the same way, to marry a woman that he knew would be unfaithful to him, knowing that she would break his heart by breaking the covenant. But not only that, he was, he was to love and he was to care for her children of whoredom, these, some other guy's kids that she brought home, choosing to adopt them and name them and raise them as her own. But his love for her it, it meant nothing to her. She, she didn't care. She didn't care about her husband. She didn't care about her kids. She didn't care about her family. She only cared about herself. And so she left. She left her family. She walked right out the door saying, I'll go after my lovers. I'll sleep with whoever I want, whenever I want, with whomever gives me what I want. Saying, I'll, I'll sleep with whoever gives me the bread and the food that I want. I'll sleep with whoever will give me the wool and the flax and the, the fancy clothes that I want, the, the oils, the soften the skin, wine to drink, this, this life of luxury that I want that you can't provide for me. And while she'd given up on her family, Hosea hadn't given up on her, at least not yet. And like you can hear the sense of urgency in his voice pleading that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, that she would stop this path that she was headed down and return to him, return to them. And mind you, Hosea, he had every right to divorce his wife, to leave her. In fact, under the Mosaic law, he, he had the right to have her stoned, and not only her, but the men that she had slept with. But that's not what he wanted. No, his desire was for reconciliation with his wife. His desire was for restoration of this marriage. And when we look into the heart of God, we see the heart of a, of a devoted husband, of a, of a loving father who wants to restore this relationship with his people. People who played the whore. With Israel worshiping Baal, this Canaanite god of fertility and, and prosperity, and worshiping Baal along with Yahweh. And, and their religious syncretism, their adulterous, polyamorous relationship with, with Baal, it, it defiled this exclusive, intimate relationship that was to be reserved with God and God alone. But in spite of their infidelity, God hadn't given up on his people. 
Instead, what we see here is God calling his people to, to repent, to recognize the danger of their sin, to put away their whoring, to turn from their sin and return to him. Because see, repentance, um, repentance isn't simply an acknowledgement of sin. It's not simply confession of sin. No, repentance involves a complete reorientation of yourself, of your entire being back to God. Amen. And God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, aren't they? God sees things we don't see, doesn't he? And so God, in his sovereignty, he sees and he knows the danger of our sin especially unrepentant sin that is hidden. And he knows the destruction it causes, and that's what he shows us here in verses three through four. Right? He shows us that, that he knows how unrepentant sin shames. Right? It shames. In, in some ancient Near Eastern cultures at the time, uh, it was actually permissible for husbands to strip their adulterous wife of their clothing and leave them standing naked for everyone to see. And I think that's what we think will happen if we acknowledge and confess and repent of our sin. And we're scared of that. We're afraid of that. And I think that's why we end up hiding our sin in the dark and keeping it secret, keeping it safe, don't we? Fearing that shame, fearing the embarrassment, fearing the disgrace of having our sin drug into the light for everyone to see. We don't want people to know or see the real us. And so we hide our sin. But that sin only continues to fester and grow as it hides. God knows that, but God also knows how unrepentant sin, it, it separates. Right? It separates us. It leads us out into a wilderness, making our relationships with each other and with God like a, like a once fertile, prosperous land. It makes it parched and barren. And that God, what we see here is he wants to protect you from that. He wants to protect you from that isolation, that separation that we feel, that we feel with God because of our sin and with each other because of our sin. But not only that, what we see here in verse 3 is that God knows how unrepentant sin severs. It maims, it kills, it, it eats away at everything it touches, and it leaves nothing left, leading to death, leading to exile, severing us from God, an eternal death, an eternal exile. But God's not just trying to protect you in the midst of this. He's also trying to protect those around you. Because he also knows how unrepentant sin spreads. It infects others. It impacts others. And Hosea's wife's sin had spread to her children of whoredom. It had become generational. And I think all of this, I think part of the reason we don't take our sin seriously is because we don't realize how dangerous it is. We don't realize the damage that it causes in our lives and to those we love. We don't realize the path of destruction that it sets us on, like Israel and like Hosea's wife. But as we see into the heart of God, we see like, that's not what God wants for you. That's not what God wants for us. That's not what God wants for anyone. 
And so what God does is he steps in and he, he intervenes responding to sin. And the extent of God's intervention reveals the extent of his love. We're going to see just how far God is willing to go to pursue his people and restore this relationship. And we see three steps that he takes here, marked by the three therefore statements here. And the first step, the first therefore, is that God disrupts our lives when he steps in, doesn't he? God will disrupt our lives. He will cut us off on that path to destruction. Look at verse 6. Hosea writes, Therefore I will, I will hedge up her way with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her pass. Now remember, this was a, an agrarian society. This was a farming community. It was, it was basically like where I grew up in Iowa only 2,700 years ago, which means they're basically the exact same thing. I was about 2,500 years off. And so dad and I, what we would do is we would, we would go out into the field, out in the pasture, and we would set up a, uh, this temporary electric fence to keep the cattle in the pasture, to keep them from getting out. And whereas we did that, what, what they would do, is, they didn't have electricity then. I don't know if you didn't know that uh, history lesson. No electricity 2,700 years ago. So what they did, they would grow up these hedges that had thorns in them to keep them in. They would build stone walls to keep their sheep and their goats from, from wandering off. But now remember, much of Hosea, as we talked last week, it is both poetic and prophetic, isn't it? It is metaphor that is used to paint pictures with words. And so think of it here as, think of them as describing, um, how many of y'all put up a kitty gate in your house, right? You put up the kitty gate, um, to protect your little one, right? And you put it like, you put it at the top of the stairs so they can't fall down the stairs. You put it at the bottom of the stairs so they can't go up the stairs and then fall down the stairs. We still have a kitty gate so our dog doesn't fall down the stairs. The boys are fine. The kitty gate is not there for them anymore. But that's what you do as a loving parent to protect your children. And that's what God was doing here. The thorns, they were a warning. They, they weren't meant to harm when you prick your finger when touching them. They were meant to alert you to the danger that you were in. And, and the walls, they were, they were a barrier, not meant to restrict you, but to protect you from the danger that lies ahead so that she couldn't find her paths, paths that led to her destruction. So these, these obstructions were intended to frustrate her so that she, as she continued to pursue her, her other lovers, as she continued to seek them, she would come up empty. She, she wouldn't be able to find them. And what we see here is that while these obstructions did lead to her frustration, they did not lead to her transformation, at least not yet. Her desire was still for her other lovers. Her desire was still for the things that they could give her, the good gifts they lavished upon her, but... She came to the realization that if, if they couldn't give her the things that she wanted anymore, then they were of no value to her. This relationship was of no value anymore. Thinking, I may as well go back then. I may as well return to my first husband. I may as well go back to Hosea because at least it was better for me then than now. At least it's better for me there than here. This was not a repentant return. This was a reluctant return. She was out of options. She had nowhere else to go because of this disruption in her life. 
and like Hosea's wife, like Israel, it's easy for us to become so fixated on those things that we desire that we're unable to see the danger that we're in. We're unable to see uh, the destruction that lies ahead. I mentioned we've got this cute little beagle, Alice. I haven't talked to you about Alice for like two weeks, have I? Your bingo card, you get Iowa and Alice in the same sermon. Alice, though, she's a beagle, and beagles are scent dogs. So she, um, she can get so fixated on, on following the scent trail when she picks it up that she'll follow it right out of the backyard. She'll follow it right into the street. She'll follow it right into oncoming traffic. Now, would it be loving for us to just let Alice roam free like that? No, no that was really good. You're ready, to, you're ready to adopt a beagle. No. And so we disrupt her path, don't we? we? We close the gate. At least we try to remember to. There were a couple times we forgot. We put her on a leash when we walk her. And it's not meant to be restrictive. It's meant to be protective. It's meant to be loving. And as we see into the heart of God, we see the extent of his love for us and how far he's willing to go to protect us. As he disrupts our lives, stepping in and intervening, raising up thorny hedges that we might get poked, but it's in a warning of the danger. He raises up walls that are barriers to cut off our path. The second step that we see here, the second, therefore, is that God disciplines our sin. He disciplines our sin. See, what Hosea's wife and Israel had failed to recognize, he says here in verse 8, is that they failed to remember that God was the giver of the good gifts not her other lovers, and certainly not Baal. God was the one who provided them with food to eat, with wine to drink, who lavished on her silver and gold. But rather than giving thanks to God, Israel gave thanks to Baal. And so what God did is he he set out to reveal Baal's incompetence, his impotence. He set out to reveal his failure, the failure of this supposed God of fertility and prosperity to provide for them and fulfill the promises that he made to them. Therefore, God says he was going to take back the good gifts that he had blessed them with. My grain that you used to make bread, the wine that you took from my cellar, the wool and flax, my wool and flax that you used to make clothing. Right, God, he was ending this season of prosperity that Israel had been experiencing under the reign of Jeroboam II, a season of prosperity that they attributed to their worship of Baal. But then next he goes on to say that he would uncover their lewdness. He would expose their sin, revealing to them how offensive this idolatrous, adulterous worship of Baal was to God. And how foolish it was, showing how, how Baal was not only incapable of, of providing for them, but of protecting them. Even putting an end to their worship of God, he says, because, because it had become so intertwined and, and infected by their worship of Baal, it was become one and the same. And then he would go on and lay waste to her vines and fig trees. This season of prosperity would come to an end as punishment for their worship of Baal. All because they had associated this season of prosperity with Baal rather than Yahweh. 
as a good gift from Baal. And like discipline, when we hear that word, it sounds punitive, doesn't it? Like we don't enjoy discipline. But what we know is that it's in fact corrective. The author of Hebrews, pulling from the Psalms, reminds us that the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son and daughter that he receives. God's lack of discipline of us would only reveal his lack of love for us. So as we see into the heart of God here, we see a father who disciplines us out of his love for us, for our own good, directing our lives to that which is good and that which is glorifying to him. But even though now, after these first couple of steps, even though now we're out of the imminent danger, our lives disrupted, our sin disciplined, God continues stepping in and intervening, taking a third step here, the third, therefore, as he begins to draw us to something better, as God draws us back to him. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And God wants to deliver us through and out of this valley that we find ourselves in. Out of, out of the danger and off of this path of destruction that we're on. Out of our own valley of Achor, which, which in the Hebrew means trouble. It was a valley that was named for the trouble that Israel experienced, their trouble brought on by a man named Achan, who uh, after Israel had um, defeated Jericho, after crossing the river, he, um, he stole some of the gold and the silver that was intended uh, to be for God. And he knew what he did was wrong, and so he, he hid his sin. He hid this treasure he hid in shame. But what we see later on is that his sin spread, and it brought trouble on Israel because in their next battle at the, at the city of Ai, um, 3,000 soldiers were slaughtered. And Joshua, knowing that something had happened, he, there in this valley, he begins questioning everyone, tribe by tribe. And eventually, he comes to Achan, and Achan confesses his sin. He confesses that he stole from God. And so there in that valley of trouble, Achan was put to death for his sin and the trouble that he brought upon the people of Israel. He was burned and he was stoned. My God wants to lead us through that valley and out of that valley of death and trouble and into something better. He wants to lead us through a door, a door of hope that he says here that, that leads to a, to a valley of vineyards that have now been replanted, right? A valley of life and, and abundance brought about by the death of another man, an innocent man who died not for his own sins, but the sins of everyone else. But our lives have become so noisy, so chaotic, so busy that we can barely hear God calling to us. We've forgotten the voice of the good shepherd calling out to us. We can barely hear his voice inviting us in. And so 
God intervenes. He steps in and he leads us into the wilderness. He leads us out of the chaos, out of the noise, and into the wilderness, into a place of silence and solitude, void of those distractions that draw our affection away from God so that we can hear his voice again, so that we can hear the good shepherd calling out to us, not, not, not yelling at us, no, but speaking tenderly to us, alluring us, drawing us through the door and into his presence answering and responding to his call. Because it's there on this other side of this door of hope that we find the good news in Hosea. We find this message of hope here. He says, and in that day, that day that we step through that door, that God promises a series of four realities that exist on the other side, the, the telos of this story of redemption, this project of restoration, the renewal of God's once very good creation. And the first promise that he says here is that in that day, God will restore his relationship with his people. And he says in verse 16 and 17, he says, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal, which means Lord or Master, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. In that day, we will worship God and God alone because all the other things that distract our attention, that draw our affection away from God, they will be forgotten. Those other things that we have worshipped alongside God, that we have made Lord over our life, that we have served as our master, they will be remembered no more in this restored, intimate relationship that we will have with God. And just as Hosea's wife would once again say, you are my husband, we as God's people will respond with that same level of affection for God. And the second promise that we see here is that in that day, God will restore his covenant with his people. He'll restore that covenant. And he says in verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant in that day, a new covenant. One, the prophet Jeremiah says, will not be like the old covenant. It won't be like the one that God made at Sinai, the one that, that God's people broke as an unfaithful bride. Not a, not a covenant written on tablets of stone, but a covenant written on our hearts. This new covenant, it's not going to be limited to humanity, to those created in the image of God, but to every living creature created by God. It'll apply to the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things on the ground, because even they have been infected by the fall. Even they have been impacted by sin. If you don't believe me, I'll give you two pieces of evidence. Possums and mosquitoes, Amen. Bring on that new covenant, especially come like July. But this new covenant, it would also be a covenant of peace, he says. As God, he would, he would abolish, he would obliterate the bow and the sword and war from the land. No more violence, no more death anymore, no more crying or pain or mourning. Because all of those former things will have passed away. And all we will be left with is peace, shalom wholeness and goodness as we lie down in safety in this new kingdom on the other side of this door. 
And just as Hosea welcomed his wife back, restoring that marriage covenant, God will do the same with us as his bride. Not just as as individuals, but as a people, as a body, as a bride, betrothed to him forever. And God, he is the one that will pay the bride price, not us. This five-fold gift that he promises of his righteousness and his justice and his love and his mercy and his faithfulness, good gifts given to us. And in that day, the, the third promise that we see here is that God will restore all of creation for his people. All of creation will be restored. He says in verse 21, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. God is going gonna to bring about restoration of this once very good creation. Right? Even the, the ground that we walk on has been impacted by sin. Subjected to futility, Paul says in verse 8, groaning in pain and waiting with eager longing for this day to be set free from its own slavery to corruption. And creation, it will respond in that day, bearing more good gifts for us, grain to make the best French baguette ever that you can eat loaf after loaf after loaf with no carbs. When Paul says, better than anything you've imagined, I'm imagining that and then some. He, he's going he's gonna to bless us with, with vineyards and, that make the best wine you have ever tasted and oil that makes your skin glisten. All right, think about it. Imagine a world with no eczema, no acne, and no sunburn. Amen? And in that day, the fourth promise that he makes is that God will restore us as his people. He says, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. The violence and the bloodshed that had been associated with Jezreel that we looked at last week. In this day, its name will be restored back to its original meaning, which means to sow. As God sows us as his people throughout the land of this newly restored creation, a new heaven, a new earth, God walking among us and the curse that we saw last week has been lifted and I will say to not my people you are now my people and he shall say you are my God this is a day that that John talks about in Revelation where behold the dwelling place of God will be with us with his people with his creation and he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. And if it seems as though aspects of those four promises have already taken place, but by no means all of them, that's because while this day that Hosea refers to, this day has already dawned, the sun has already risen, we have already stepped into this doorway of hope, we are in the wardrobe, if you will, 
experiencing aspects of these promises, this promised restoration and renewal, but we have not yet crossed the threshold of this doorway. We have not yet stepped through the doorway and out of the wardrobe. We have not yet experienced the fullness of what lies on the other side. We very much still live in a broken and fallen world, don't we? We feel the effects. We see those effects that our world is still plagued by sin. And we are still waiting for the culmination of this day, living in the tension of the already and the not yet. Living in an inaugurated eschatology, as N.T. Wright refers to it in his essay entitled, Jesus is Coming, So Plant a Tree. That might be the single greatest title of an essay I have ever read. Jesus is coming, so continue to live your lives in this world as though it matters, as though this is where we will spend eternity. He goes on to say, we are living in an inaugurated eschatology as God. He's already begun the ultimate and final work of new creation. He has begun the work, but he has not yet completed the work. Right? Christ, he began this work in his first advent, in his incarnation as Jesus, the, the Son of God, the eternal Word of God. He came to us and dwelt among us as one of us, and he declared to us that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has already begun to arrive. Therefore, we respond by repenting of our sin, don't we? Repenting of our sin and believing in the good news of the gospel of who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And in that, we, we begin to experience aspects of this restoration project. As a people for his own possession, Peter says, people of a new covenant, united together in Christ as his betrothed, living out the gifts that he has blessed us with, the gifts of his righteousness, of his justice, of his love, of his mercy, and his faithfulness to us living out our restored relationship with God by loving, loving God with all our heart and soul and mind and loving others, all others, loving one another, loving our neighbor, those God has put in our lives, even loving our enemy. And not only that, living for the good of creation, living for the good of this once very good creation that will once again be very good knowing that when Christ returns in his second advent, the culmination of this day, we will experience the fullness of God's promises fulfilled in Jesus. Amen? And we will live in the fullness of God's kingdom ushered in by Jesus. And as we step in and through this door of hope, in our resurrected bodies on that day, stepping into this renewed creation, a new heaven and a new earth, we step through as a bride clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, and we will be presented to our bridegroom in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And that is the good news that we see when we see into the heart of God. That is the love God has for us. That is the love God has for you. That's the love God has for me. That is the love God has for our world. And that is the extent that God is willing to go out of that love.
That is the good news of the word that we've received this morning. And now that we've received that word, I want us to not just run past it. I want us to take a moment to reflect on that word before responding. And so in the midst of this season of Lent, right, this extended season of reflection and repentance, I want to offer us an opportunity to do just that, to reflect and repent, to examine our hearts and allow the Spirit to stir, repenting of any sin and receiving that forgiveness from Christ. Because what we are seeing throughout this book is that the more we come to see the depth of our sin, the more we come to see the extent of God's love. Amen. And so we're going to spend the next moments in silent prayer, reflecting, positioning our bodies before God, opening ourselves to God, allowing the Spirit to stir, repenting of sin and receiving forgiveness. And then I'm going to close our time in silence with a reminder of this good news that we've heard and praying over us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.